0: I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And I'm talking with Kevin Ouderson, an Associate Professor of Health Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at the Boston University School of Law. Professor Outterson has written a perspective article on the regulation of compounding pharmacies in the United States. Professor Ouderson, the ongoing outbreak of fungal meningitis was caused by injections of methylprednisolone and other agents from a compounding pharmacy in Framingham, Massachusetts. How are such pharmacies currently regulated? They're regulated primarily under state law, with very little oversight
1: directly from the FDA, unless the FDA has clear evidence that what they're doing is the manufacturing of drugs on a commercial or national scale.
0: What's the nature of the industry, and and how has the role of these compounding pharmacies changed over the years?
1: Compounding, historically, is the mortar and pestle. You know, it's the pharmacist or the doctor preparing something specific for you know, a patient that's sitting in the next room, or perhaps a child who has an allergy. But what's happening in the past two decades is that increasingly it's a national multi-billion dollar business for these compounding-only pharmacies that ship to many states. NECC had a license or had approval to ship to all 50 states. So what they were doing was making vast amounts of drugs and shipping it great distances across the country.
0: Earlier this year, compounding pharmacies made the news as the good guys when KV Pharmaceuticals received FDA approval for Macena, a manufactured version of 17-alpha hydroxyprogesterone caproate, or 17-OHP, which reduces the risk of preterm births. And the company began charging about a hundred times what the compounding pharmacies had been charging for their versions of 17-OHP. How often? Do these pharmacies serve that sort of need, filling a gap in drug manufacturing and doing so at reasonable prices?
1: This is a very interesting story. What happened there is that the company decided to do clinical trials and to go through the FDA approval process, which is a good thing. They were rewarded with seven years of exclusivity as a result. And so now they have a monopoly in the market for seven years. And what they did with that was to dramatically drive the price up which upset a lot of state Medicaid directors who are trying to meet their budgets. So here was a situation in which compounding pharmacies have been filling this market. Through intellectual property loss and FDA, other FDA rules, This comp- the company now had a s- seven-year monopoly. And the FDA relaxed its standards a little bit. Normally they don't permit companies to make, compounders to make copies, identical copies of a commercially available drug, but under pressure from state Medicaid directors who are having budgetary problems, they, they relented and allowed the compounders to continue. So this is an example of the complex interaction between intellectual property law and, and pharmaceutical pricing and uh, this kind of gray area of compounders. They, they march in because they can do something more cheaply than the existing system. They also respond many times to shortages, so if, if a major factory, by like Pfizer or somebody else, has some sort of a difficulty and needs to shut down the line for a time to replace equipment or to deal with an issue, compounders frequently respond to those specific shortages by offering drugs that may not be easily available. We've seen a lot of that in the past two years, not just for sterile injectables, but also for oncology drugs.
0: So there, you've mentioned two positives uh, for compounding pharmacies. On the other side, how commonly do they essentially act as drug manufacturers? I mean, and where do you draw the line between compounding and manufacturing?
1: The line will probably be drawn by legislation that Congress will take up in the lame duck session. But currently, there's no clear line between what is you know, a compounding operation in a hospital serving only the patients of that hospital, something that no one thinks the FDA really wants to regulate. And on the other extreme, large operations shipping to 50 states, making sterile injectables in very unsterile, you know, situations like New England Compounding Center are resulting in the death of 25
0: people and sicknesses to hundreds of others. I think, in fact, That number has already gone up and and may continue to rise. To what extent do you think this current case of contamination resulted from bad policy, and to what extent is it a matter of poor enforcement of existing regulations?
1: In 2002, Massachusetts received reports that NECC had produced some problematic vials of this precise drug, and they visited NECC did an on-site inspection. The FDA did not have authority to initiate their own inspection, but the FDA inspector went along as a guest of the state of Massachusetts. Um, They took a look around. They issued a report. Um, That report eventually turned into a draft consent decree. Took two years. And uh, then attorneys were involved on behalf of NECC. And then without much
0: explanation,
1: at least not on the record so far, the Massachusetts Board of Pharmacy Regulation chose not to put the consent decree into force, but instead allowed them to just informally agree not to not to do it again, uh, without any sort of a public censure. And it's very interesting. This this correspondence makes it clear that NECC was worried that if Massachusetts publicly disciplined this pharmacy, that uh, 40 four other states at that point might choose not to continue to allow NECC to ship products into their state. And on that basis, Massachusetts apparently um, you know backed off for some reason, reason that's not disclosed in the record and uh, was satisfied that things were going to be better on a going forward basis. So there's a lot of interesting questions there. Uh, it's, it's difficult for Massachusetts to regulate a business that's operating in, in 50 states. It's very difficult for a state like Tennessee, where a lot of the deaths have occurred, uh, for them to regulate NECC. Tennessee Department of Health is not likely to send a, an investigator to visit a Massachusetts phar- you know pharmacy, compounding pharmacy. And the FDA really was only allowed to come along as a guest and didn't have clear legal authority to intervene. So it's definitely a legal regulatory gray area
0: that needs some clarity. In that regulatory gray area, have there been other examples of severe or widespread adverse effects with these products?
1: Specifically from NECC, uh, there was the case in 2002 that resulted in a death. And uh, media reports that there was a a settlement uh, of that case before it went to trial. But uh, Representative Markey, uh, congressman here from Massachusetts, issued a report a couple days ago, which just based on FDA published warning letters, identifies, I believe, 23 deaths over the past two decades relating to compounding pharmacies. Um, Lots of scattered instances, you know, a couple here, a couple there. But it's striking that, you know, a small number of, of deaths scattered over two decades doesn't get nearly the media attention that uh, this situation has gotten. And as a result now, we have actual legislation reintroduced in Congress on this issue for the first time since 2007.
0: Your mention of legislation reminds me of a Supreme Court case, Thompson v. Western States Medical Center, that was decided in 2002. The court struck down provisions of an earlier law, the Food and Drug Administration Modernization Act, that prohibited the advertising and promotion of compounded drugs. What effect did that decision have?
1: It's a very interesting law. In in 1992, the FDA started to more aggressively enforce against compounders, trying to draw a line. The industry responded vigorously. The result was a statute in 1997, in which uh, it was really more of a safe harbor. It said to the compounding pharmacy industry, if you do the following things, you won't be subject to any FDA regulation. You won't be considered a drug manufacturer under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. One of the things in there was a ban on advertising, which was delayed for one year. You know, The law said that it becomes effective a year after it was signed by the president. Two days before the law was going to become effective, seven compounding pharmacies sued. And uh, eventually that suit made its way to the US Supreme Court. As you said, in 2002, by a 5-4 decision signed by Justice O'Connor, they said that that provision, the advertising restriction, was unconstitutional. And as a result of the way that the Ninth Circuit had looked at this case, uh, the entire compounding law, Section 503A of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, was effectively tossed out and um, remained on the books technically but uh, everyone considered it to be
0: invalid in all 50 states. As you say, there have been proposals for new legislation, uh, including one from Congressman Markey, who has introduced a bill. Can you talk about what that looks like and what the chance of success for any proposal like that is likely to be?
1: This would be the third or fourth time around on Congress trying to legislate in this area. So we had the 1997 law, which eventually the Supreme Court struck down in 2002. In 2003, Congress held hearings and thought about legislation, and the industry was successful in preventing any legislation at that time. In 2007, Senator Kennedy and Senator Roberts and others uh, authored a legislation, again trying to expand the federal regulation of compounding, and it eventually went nowhere. And now you have compounding legislation from Representative Markey uh, in whose district sits New England Compounding Center So he has a personal stake, personal interest in seeing this properly regulated. I think this last attempt probably has a very high chance of success. Uh, I'm not a political expert, but uh, in the lame duck Congress, and particularly since this is not a terribly partisan issue, um, people from all political stripes have been hurt uh, by uh, by this outbreak. I think it stands a chance and the legislation as drafted, it was released on November 1st, is actually remarkably restrained. It's not an FDA takeover by any stretch of compounding pharmacies. It keeps the traditional practice of compounding firmly under the control of the states and keeps hospital compounding firmly under the control of the states. But when a business goes interstate and begins industrial scale type operations, then the FDA has clear authority. And uh, under the bill, the compounders would have to get a waiver from the FDA or approval from the FDA to begin that type of business. That is a radical change. The FDA has never had to be asked before, before somebody began to produce and sell these drugs across the country. Thank you, Professor auderson